This episode contains mentions of death and grief. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Jyotha Gupta and this is the pulse. Death is the great equalizer. We will all die someday. And inevitable though it is, death and its accompanying rituals can nevertheless come as a surprise and even a shock. For the dying person, planning for death can make the transition easier both for the person and for their friends and family. Besides this, when a person dies, there are a large number of practical tasks that need to be taken care of. Family members are usually the ones on the front lines, balancing tasks, offering support to the dying person while managing their grief and loss. But just as there's support available during the birthing process, there's also professional assistance to ensure a dignified end of life. Today we discuss the end of life doula. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Jyotha Gupta and as always I'm joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in downtown Toronto. I have black hair that's tied back in a ponytail and today I'm wearing a navy sweater which is a bit loose fitting. It has a V-neck and I'm wearing a black pendant. Our topic today deals with death, bereavement and loss and I recognize that it might be a difficult topic for some of you especially if you've had a recent loss in the family. Often people myself included struggle with death and struggle with making decisions about how to support a loved one who is dying or to even support friends and family members who've experienced a loss. To help us make sense of some of these complicated questions, I'm joined today by Sue Phillips. Sue Phillips is the vice president of the of the End of Life Doula Association of Canada. Sue, hello and welcome to the Pulse. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. So what is an end-of-life doula? Uh, you know, I want to add something to that uh, that title because um, it's important to recognize that end-of-life doulas also help long before the actual death is at hand. So um, from diagnosis to, to death, which can can often take a long time. So now I have, uh, I call myself a critical illness end of life doula. So, you know, it helps people understand that you don't have to wait until you are very close to death. Um, so we offer, first of all, education, advocacy, and empowerment. That is kind of our touchstones, if you will, of uh, how we want to reach out to the people we support. And what that means is we offer non-medical support in a variety of ways, depending, of course, on what the, the client needs, what the family needs. And we're there for the entire circle of care. And, uh, you know, we want to be part of the wider healthcare circle. So not to replace anyone, but to be uh, supporting uh, you know, a supporting member of that circle. So what is the difference between a, an end-of-life doula or a critical care end-of-life doula and, let's say, a nurse in a palliative care unit? What is it that you do that's different from what they do? Non-medical. Sim very simple. Non-medical. We do not 
Um, we do not even give someone their medication. We don't move them. We, you know, if someone is uh, bedridden, we, are, you know, that is not something that we would do. We certainly are, you know, have various trainings and, you know, how to um, maybe physically touch someone, but that is not, that is absolutely not what we do. We're there for emotional, practical, and spiritual mm -hmm. support. Can you expand on that a little bit? So when you say emotional, practical, and spiritual support, what sort of things are we talking about? Okay, so um, advanced care planning. So that would be one of the first things I talk to a client about. You know, after, um, after I ask them, do you have your legal paperwork in order, right? And that is, you know, a big part of what people need to do. And we really, really encourage people to take care of that as soon as possible because we want to help you live every moment um, as joyfully and uh, without, you know, stress. Uh, so, so that's a big part of what I would speak with someone about first. Then I might talk about where do they understand they're at in their journey? Um, what do they understand about their medical diagnosis? And what do they feel they need help with? So I would, you know, kind of let them lead. They, you know, clients are leading us. We are, they, you, me, we are all the experts of our own uh, illness and death journey. We are the architects of how uh, we need it to go. So I would find out if they need, if their caregivers need respite, you know, if family members need somebody to come in and sit. Um, compassionate companioning, sitting with someone, just talking, allowing them to express what they're going through, what they're feeling. Oftentimes, a client does not want to, A, bother their family with their emotional, uh, you know, experiences, and definitely often do not want to bother uh, their medical doctors. Uh, so, I'm that person who can sit in, in that space, allow that space for them to express. Um, we do work on, uh, you know, what is your what is your death plan? Like, do you want to die at home? Do you want to die in hospice? Um, you know, who do you want with you? How do you want it to look? What kind of music do you want? Like, really get into um, helping people understand what is going to make them feel as you know, as empowered as possible. Um, other pieces could be working on a legacy. So, you know, a legacy of uh, could be an art project, a music project, storytelling, you know, like spoken word. All There's all kinds of ways that we, um, you know, do a legacy, leave a legacy for our loved ones. So that's another that's another big piece. Um, we sit vigil when someone is in their active, active dying phase. Uh, so there, there's a real wide variety of uh, what we can offer. Do you, when someone is expecting a baby, when a woman is expecting a baby, um, they'll often talk you through what to expect from the delivery process. Do you also talk to people about what to expect uh, from death? and the actual physical changes that you might undergo. Absolutely. And, uh, and that is something that people, you know, shy away from doing. You, you know, we, we talk about, um, 
there's a lot of fear, as we know. I mean, we were we are afraid of death, and that's because we we took it away from the family. You know, between the funeral homes and the medical pro- and advances in the medical profession. Thank thank goodness for for many of those advances. But we've added this mystery to it, and uh, so that can be very, very difficult. So yes, we will definitely sit, gather resources, explain what the body will look like, what the breathing will be like, um, you know, all of those things. Absolutely essential to talk with people only if they, you know, if they of course, ask. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. And but death and what comes after that is such a deeply spiritual experience. Some people think, well, there's nothing. Some people think there's you know, you, there's an afterlife or and somewhere you go after. How does someone's religious or cultural belief system tie into your work as an end of life doula? Again, they lead us. So is there a ritual that we can help you with? Is there, you know, is there a, a faith-based practice that I'm not aware of? You just tell me what it is you need and I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. Um, it's, I'm, you know, always on a learning path and, and uh, you know, I'm currently taking a course through Centennial College called Thanatology, which is the study of death and dying and grief and bereavement. And one of the units is the cultural and religious, you know, aspect of, of things. So we are there to, you know, help people achieve what they need around that. I was talking to my husband and uh, when he lost his father, he mentioned that um, after his father passed away, they, the family was in such a, he described it as a haze. Um, and they were trying to get a headstone uh, for his, for the niche, you know, he'd been cremated and they had a niche and they, uh, and once they got the headstone uh, for where the niche was, was um, they found that the name had been misspelled. The person, my, my father-in-law's, my late father-in-law's name had been misspelled on the niche. And they said, we didn't catch it because it's so overwhelming when someone dies and you have all of these emotions and you're dealing with all of these feelings. Um, is one of the benefits of having a, an end of, of life doula, the fact that maybe not that to say that you don't care, but you're not emotionally invested in, and you're not grieving in the same way. So you would have caught that mistake. Absolutely. That is exactly a very good, uh, a very good point. Um, you know, and we are emotional. I would, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, I have been involved just uh, not very long, uh, three years since 2019, and uh, did not have any background in health in the healthcare field at all. And um, when I told people what I was going to be doing, they were shocked, you know, and aren't you going to be too emotional for that? Because I am an emotional person. I can be. Um, But I find it quite different. And I find the desire to create that calm uh, atmosphere, that calm space for people, very important. So it's um, it's come to me so easily, and uh, it's it's very interesting. I can't explain it. I call it my soul work, and I, I really can't explain how I'm able to to not be emotional. Um, again, you have to prepare. Self care is really important. Preparing before you sit with a client, you know, taking care of yourself, following care of a client in whatever fashion. Um, even when it comes to, you know, those practical things like working with a funeral home, 
you know, checking paperwork, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, it can be very draining, but you have to just focus on uh, self-care and, and uh, we get through it. it. These people might be looking to me to create a an atmosphere that is conducive to a really healthy, difficult conversation. So I have to, you know, be there for them. You mentioned you don't have uh, or you didn't have a background in healthcare before this. Uh, and then you, you make a decision to work in end of life care and support. How did you make that decision? You know, I still get goosebumps thinking about this, and it sounds very cliche. I wasn't looking for it. It found me. I uh, retired from a 30-year position. I worked with the public school board as administrative support, and uh, I retired. Had no plans to look for a, a retirement job. And about three years into my retirement, I was doing some volunteer work and uh, not in the field at all. And um, I came across an ad for a course at Douglas College in end-of-life doula work. And I really just jumped right in. I called uh, an executive director of a hospice who was a close friend. I asked her her opinion of end-of-life doulas, and she said, we need people. The world needs doulas. Uh, so that was all I needed to hear, and I jumped right into that. I jumped right into a course of uh, at the hospice uh, to be a visiting volunteer as well, so I was able to do both at the same time. And then I... <laughs> And then I kind of hung my shingle, so to speak, right at the beginning of the pandemic. That must have been tough. Yeah. A lot of people dying and a lot of people dying alone, which I've heard is not a good situation. You should obviously try to have someone with you. How did you navigate the pandemic and, and the fact that so many people were being isolated and away from their families and going through the experience of dying? We, we definitely could not be with people in uh, long-term care, um, and and I have to clarify that we are private. So we are a private service. We are self-regulated. We are not regulated by a government, you know, a governing body. Uh, so we are a private service. So you know, if your family wants to use a doula, that is privately out of your pocket. Um, we are not members or. Um, employees of long-term care homes or hospices. Uh, so even as a volunteer at hospice, we couldn't, volunteers couldn't go in at the beginning of the pandemic for months and months. So I just thought, well, I guess I'll have to wait to start my support services. Um, but I got very lucky in that um, someone found my name listed with the uh, doula association actually and uh, it was before I, I be, you know, became a member of the board. And um, they were quite happy to receive support virtually. And uh, so, it, it, you know, that's how, that's how it started. And, and I can't say I have not supported a large amount of people um, over the last, uh, say, 18 months, you know. But um, I'm not sure I would want to be supporting a, you know, a great many people. One of the things that I think we should clarify is that a doula is best equipped to help when there's a terminal illness. But 
often death, let's say because of an accident or if it's, if it's unforeseen, can be more so a shock. Is there still a role for an end-of-life doula to play if the person doesn't have a terminal illness but the family might still need support? Absolutely. Um, and that is the reason that I, you know, I have added illness to my uh, to, to my name. Um, yeah, we need support. We need companions. We need people to go get some groceries or, you know, um, just give somebody some respite. There's, there's so much to do. Just sitting at someone's bedside, talking with them when they're not well, it can be, you know, a tremendous, tremendous help. I think a lot of people wonder about what they should or shouldn't do when someone is dying should you be in the room with them should you t- you know should you hold their hand or should you not touch them uh you know should you talk to them what makes for a good death i love that you asked that because i've just have been planning a death cafe with uh, a couple of friends coming up in 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 a couple of weeks and i said <laughs> Maybe one of our prompt questions can be, is there such a good, uh, such a thing as a good death? And again, that's up to the client. And that is if we are lucky enough to be able to express our wishes ahead of time. So talk about what our comfort plan is. And that includes what I want for my body, what I want in my environment. Uh, you know, what do I want to hear? What do I want to see? What kind of music? Everything. What blanket I want on me? Do I want people to touch my feet? No. Do I want someone to touch my hand or my head? Um, Do I want someone to bring in some energy work like Reiki or therapeutic touch? You know, all of those things, if we are lucky enough and open enough to really contemplate that and document it, that is one of the most important things is to document the wishes so that that empowers everybody around you. So, you know, when I say to my partner, please make sure that, you know, I'm wearing those purple socks, you know, (laughs) I'm going to write that down and I'm going to, you know, for sure have those purple socks on, whether I can uh, communicate or not. And, uh, you know, the other piece is that people really need to think about identifying who is going to speak for them when they can't speak for themselves. So we really need to identify that substitute decision maker, not just, you know, we're not talking decisions high level, but also about those kinds of things, touch, sound, you know. I um, remember that some of the, the, you know, I remember when my grandparents died and um, I was quite young when that happened. And you realize that it's not just, when you talk about families, you're not just dealing with adults or people who are managing funeral ex- arrangements or uh, dealing with the legalities of someone's passing away, you're often dealing with children. What kind of support would you offer children in understanding what happens when a loved one passes away? It's a very good question. I myself always reach out to resources that I have who specialize in working with children in uh, the dying process and grief and bereavement. You know, that's another thing we took away. I mean, you know, many, many years ago, we took care of our ill and dying in our homes, which meant that children were exposed to everything. We held funerals in, in our homes. 
and children were not um, hidden. They they understood it. They, you know, yes, it's a difficult situation. It absolutely is difficult. But there's a lot of honor in that community of people looking after the person who's dying, including children. It's a very special niche, in my opinion, and not one that I have fully embraced um, working directly with children. But I I have many resources and people who do work specifically with children. It's a it's a tough one. It is a tough one uh, because you never know when the right time is and and what to say to to children about death because they'll carry those ideas into adulthood with them. Uh, you've been practicing for the last three years or so. And so along with the pandemic, the other big conversation happening in Canada is around uh, medical assistance in dying, where uh, people are now making decisions about choosing when and uh, when they die, especially if they're dealing with a terminal illness. Has the introduction of MAID in any significant way changed the work that you do? Well, it's been available since, you know, since 2016. So it was already kind of fully in our psyches by the time I started. Uh, every client mm -hmm. I've worked with or consulted with has asked me about it, wants details on it. I have only had one client who utilized it. And I supported that client for almost a year before um, they died utilizing uh, assistance in dying. And I mean, I, my personal feeling about it is that I'm glad I live in Canada where we do have the opportunity to in what many of us believe is to die with dignity and um, yeah so everybody asks about it yeah no I mean it's certainly very topical and people want to feel like they have some control yeah over that situation. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that uh, end-of-life doulas are self-regulated and there isn't a government body regulating end-of-life doulas as such. But what are some of the ethical considerations that you, that you work on the basis of? Well, we, uh, again, we really um, have to be careful around the non-medical. That is, you know, uh, absolute priority is that we are not there for that and that can be that can be challenging sometimes i mean if you're if you're sitting at bedside and you know somebody says please move me uh that you know there can be some liability around that so you do have to be careful with that and uh, you have to be mindful of culture and religion as we talked about you have to be very mindful of that you have to you know embrace um, and welcome diversity, but you have to be, you know, non-judgmental in every meaning of that word. Uh, so you can't be pressing your own beliefs. You know, for instance, I would never um, ask someone if they wanted to die with medical assistance. I may ask them, do they know about it? Are they interested in, in getting some information about it? But I, I don't I don't necessarily talk about my personal feelings about mm -hmm. that. We only have about a minute left. If someone wanted to contact you or if they wanted to utilize an end-of-life doula, how do they go about doing that? Well, I'm happy to, I'm thrilled to promote our association. I'm really glad that you reached out to us. We were formed in 2016, so we're still in our infancy. We started with 30 people and two founders and we now have close to 500 people, 500 doulas working in various at various levels of their journey, whether they're already supporting people, 
perhaps they're um, still in their learning. Um, but yes, we have about 500 people across Canada. And our website, the End of Life Doula Association of Canada.org, has a listing of available uh, end of life doulas um, in each province. And these are people who are registered, who have started their services. Um, and uh, so I'm thrilled to, you know, to be a part of the growth of this wonderful organization, this community of uh, end of life doula professionals. And there is also a death doula Ontario network. So people can go online and find uh, a doula through that network as well. Sue, it's such an important uh, conversation and you do such important work for families when they are dealing with a difficult moment. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of what you do with us today and for being on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sue Phillips is the Vice President of the End of Life Doula Association of Canada. I hope uh, you found this conversation informative. Uh, if you have any feedback, we would love to hear from you. You can always leave comments down below if you're listening on YouTube or if you've joined us uh, using one of the podcast streaming platforms. Again, please leave your comments down below. Don't forget to subscribe. We put out videos every week. We put out these podcasts every week. So it's a great way to get future contents delivered right to you. We'd also like to hear from you by email. You can write to feedback at ami.ca. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545 if you'd like to leave a voicemail. Also, please give us your permission to play the audio on the program. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. And you can reach me on Twitter at Juhita Gupta. Our videographer today has been Ted Cooper. Marco Flalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is coordinator for podcasts at AMI-audio. And Andy Frank is manager of AMI-audio here at Accessible Media Inc. On behalf of the team, I've been your host, Chueta Gupta. Thanks for listening.